Um, some of you, when you came in this morning, received this little handout along with your bulletin, and, and some didn't get it, and we have some more to pass out if you uh, would like to be able to follow along the message today. That really good-looking woman over there, Sherry, and her equally good-looking husband, Randy, uh, will pass out some of those flyers. So if you didn't get one and you'd like one, these are study notes as we go through Revelation. Just raise your hand up, and they'll be happy to hand one to you. Um, what you're going to get today is a three-page handout, and that particular handout has last week's notes, which have the blanks filled in for you already, and this week's notes, which have the blanks not filled in. Now, when I preach, I tend to really get, you know, kind of cruising along, and I may fly over some of the points unintentionally. So, I've taken my copy, and I'm putting it down here on the floor. It already has the, note, the uh, blanks filled in. So if you missed any at the end of the service, you can walk up and grab that and see if there's any that you weren't able to track in or fill in the blank there. Hopefully, I'll, uh, I'll hit all those and you won't have to do that, but we'll see. Well, before we um, jump into the text, I want to invite you to spend a moment praying with me that we would really approach this text as wanderers and worshipers as much as we would approach it as people who are students of Scripture, who want to learn what God has to say. And I'll explain that more in a moment. But would you bow with me? Even with having sung the songs, Father, our minds are still distracted. I'm filled with thoughts of things we'll be doing later today and things that we are involved in this morning. But I ask for the presence of your Spirit here that would allow us to separate out the cares and the activities of this world for this next half hour, 40 minutes, whatever time it takes, asking that your Spirit would superintend over this facility, both for the numbers of adults that are downstairs in classes right now and, and children that are in classrooms, and for those of us that occupy this space God, that our hearts would be in tuned with what you want us to know. That we would focus on the things that your Spirit wants us to see. We would ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. My Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, something very specific about the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says that the Word of God is a really sharp, sharp scalpel. This is what it specifically says. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's a pretty, pretty sharp instrument, wouldn't you say? There's surgeons who attend here and call New Hope their church home. But I doubt any of the surgeons who attend here have ever had someone come to them and say, would you do surgery on my soul? Because we can't do that. We don't have the human capability to divide the thoughts of man. That's a very deep penetration when it says it's able to divide right down to the very marrow, the very deepest part of the body, to the, judge the thoughts and the intentions of man. 
That's the balance we have to find this morning. God says, I want you to know me. We want to know him. And sometimes we're so tempted to do it academically that we miss the wonder and the majesty. It happened to me this morning as I'm standing here singing with you. All week long, I've been involved in looking at the Greek meaning and the Hebrew meaning and this jot and this tittle and the phraseology and what does that word mean? Cool. But when you do that, sometimes you miss the majesty. So here I am standing and singing with you. Here I am to worship. And at that moment, I just had to confess and say, wow, Lord, I came in here with the world of academia on my mind to teach, but I'm a worshiper, just like you. And so that's the spirit we enter into this text with, the balance, finding the balance between wanting to know more about God and letting that translate to the worship of the one whom we call the King of Kings. So let's step back to where we left, left off last week. I told you that the word blessed was used of us as the church as we read the book of Revelation. We're blessed if we study the book of Revelation. Literally, the word that's used there is the word esher. And it's not used very many times in the Bible. The word blessed is used a lot, but the word esher is not used a whole lot. And it literally means to guide, to guide along a path to sort out the wrong and the right. So as we move through the text, through the book of Revelation, we need the blessing of God to help us sort through all the wicked philosophies that are out there and see the truth of God. And if we're faithful to the text, what he promises, if we will heed the text, that's what it said, we'll be blessed. So that's what we're looking for this morning, to understand, to settle down, push yourself as deep into those padded pews as you can so you can really kick back and get to know more about this King of Kings. Because I guarantee you what you're about to see this morning is the most amazing description of Jesus you have ever encountered. He's written of in the New Testament, but very, very vaguely in human form. But this description is as Lord of Lords, and it just blows you away. So this is what it says in, John, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Why the seven churches? Why are they called the seven churches? It's not as though they're the only churches that existed at that time. There were many churches throughout the, uh, the area, the region of what we call Asia Minor, what's known as Turkey today. First of all, let's look at a map and locate this region. Some of you have traveled there to the area around the Aegean Sea near the Mediterranean. And you've actually visited the sites of where these seven churches exist. The biggest and most prominent one was the church at Ephesus, the biggest city of its known time. Southwestern Turkey, we call it today. And those seven churches made a concentric circle. Now, very specifically, they are historical sites. They do exist, literal seven churches. They were arranged in such a way, geographically, that information started with the church at Ephesus and made its way all the way around the circle and began to disseminate from there out to the other churches. 
So understand that John, Jesus, writing through John, is not just speaking to the seven churches mentioned here, but he's speaking to all the churches. How do I know that? Seven in Bible is always used as a number of completeness and fullness. The word seven, when it appears in Scripture, is speaking of perfection, meaning complete and full. And so that's what we have here. Not just historical churches, not just the best communication points, but seven is the number of completeness and fullness. And what does John say to them right at the very beginning? Grace and peace to you. Now, why did they need to know that? Grace is what we receive from God that we didn't deserve to get, right? That's the definition for it. Grace, we receive it from God, the things that unmerited grace, the gift of God, things that we didn't receive or deserve that we did receive. And he says, peace. Peace comes as the result of grace. God's grace flows through, and as a result, we have peace to be able to encounter difficult circumstances. These churches were under the heel of Domitian, Caesar of all Rome. This is a Roman province. They needed to know grace and peace. But John didn't say, it's coming from me. Who's it coming from? He says it's coming from him who is and who was and who is to come. Each name of God in the Bible abounds with a a description of him that is characteristic that you can't find in many other sources. As a matter of fact, this title, him who is and who was and who is to come, occurs no place else in the Bible except here in the book of Revelation. What is it? It's a paraphrase for the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, Yahweh. I am who I am. The one whom we encountered back on Mount Sinai when we were working through the book of Exodus. So what he's saying is, Yahweh gives you grace and peace. Specifically, Isaiah wrote about this. He referred to him this way. Isaiah 41.4, you'll see it up on the screen. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, Yahweh, look at the description, am the first and with the last, I am he. Same God eternally present. He is timeless. Yet he's given a description here to help us understand in time, past, present, future. But he's timeless. So he helps us to grasp this timelessness by saying, I am he who was, I am he who is, and I am the one who is to come. Now the next phrase, it says, from the seven spirits. What in the world is that? The seven spirits who are before his throne. Remember the word seven again is a picture of fullness and completeness. So when you see the word seven, you have to think completely full. Sevenfold spirit who is before the throne, the seven spirits. So if he's completely full, this spirit we're speaking of here is one individual. I want you to take just a minute and flip back in your Bibles if you have them with you to the book of Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 11. There's a description of the Holy Spirit there, and it's a description of the Messiah when he arrives, so that when Jesus arrives on the earth, the people who are watching for him, I'm talking about in the first century, will know what to look for, because this description in Isaiah chapter 11 says, this is what you're supposed to look for, this one who is full of the Spirit. Here's the definition from Isaiah chapter 11. 
The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So you can circle these in your Bible and go back and look at this, but in ancient Jewish times, they understood the seven spirits of God was one being with these seven characteristics. So number them off with me. The Spirit of the Lord, one, will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom, two. The Spirit of understanding, three. The Spirit of counsel, four. The Spirit of power, five. The Spirit of knowledge, six. And the Spirit of the fear of the Lord, seven. Every Christmas, when you watch Jewish homes put up a menorah in their window, you are seeing a reminder of the sevenfold Spirit of God. Seven candlesticks on one stem, and Jewish people understand that that's the seven spirits of God. One candlestick for each of the seven components of the Spirit of God. So we have this promise of grace and peace from Him who is and who was and is to come, and from this being, the Spirit of God, that has all these characteristics. And so the promise of Messiah when He arrived would be that He would contain all of the fullness of the Spirit, all seven characteristics. Now the next verse This is specifically about Jesus. Verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. This is real important that we get this down because there's three more names here. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. If you're in a courtroom and you have a faithful witness come in, You know that's one that you can depend on. Whatever that person says is true. And so whatever Jesus is about to reveal to us about the plan for planet Earth is faithful and true. You can depend upon it. This is why Jesus said he was born, John 18, 37. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. To testify to what? The truth. To speak to the truth. And the next title of him, the firstborn of the dead. Now, we're not talking about chronologically because Jesus himself raised Lazarus from the dead. There were others that were resurrected. Not first in chronology, first in supremacy, first in authority over all, first in preeminence. The word is prototokos, and it means to have preeminence over everything because Jesus was raised to glory. He didn't resume his old life on earth like Lazarus. He was raised and glorified. So firstborn of the dead. And then the last title here, ruler of the kings of the earth, absolutely sovereign over this world with total authority. This one really caught me this week because I was thinking about the kings of the earth. Indeed, Satan took Jesus to a very high place when he was here on earth. And said, if you will bow before me, you see all the kingdoms of this world? They're yours. If you will just submit and bow. How did Jesus rebuke him? With the word of God and said, you shall have no other gods before you. The very thing that Satan tried to tempt Jesus with, he already owns. He rules over the kingdoms of this earth. And so what it means is not just Domitian, not just Nero, Not just Alexander the Great will one day bow the knee before Jesus, but President Obama, Ahmadinejad, Vladimir Putin, 
every name you can mention of a person who's in power and control, they will bow the knee before the king of kings because he shares power with no man. And he does not bow the knee to anyone. He is the king of kings, and every eye will see him. That's what we're told here in Scripture. So the next portion of the verse tells us what he did. Verse 5 says, who loves us and released us. So you've got present tense. He's loving us. He keeps on loving us. And one time, he released us. Past tense. It's in the back. It's done. It's over. He released us from sin. Now, if you happen to have a King James Version of the Bible, you'll see in that very verse there, it says that he washed us. You might want to just kind of pencil scratch that out and put the word released in there because that was an improper interpretation. The word actually is released, even though they mistranslated just by one letter, and it became the word washed as opposed to released. Wash is okay, but released is much more complete. And the old, the old hymn that people used to sing in church, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb, came right out of that verse, but it actually means to be released. We've been set free from our sins. Jesus died to release us. And so what you find here is John declaring all these attributes and characteristics of Jesus because he paid the ultimate price through his blood. That's how he released us. Now remember where John's at when he wrote this. Think about this prison camp he's in. He's on this island. Domitian has taken his picture and put it all over the Roman province. At some point, he said, when you see this man, he is to be arrested and taken to a Roman penal colony, and he is to work in the mines, even though he's in his 80s. In his 80s, John says, he released me, and he's cleansed me by the price of his blood. He's in the worst place of his life a Roman prison camp, and yet he can proclaim this. No wonder his disciples, John's disciples, the ones that he trained, could bear up under the pressure of the Caesars. Remember the name that I gave you last week, Polycarp? Really weird Greek name. This is one of the guys who followed after John, who was trained by him. He lived with John. He learned the things from John that John taught him about Jesus. When Polycarp was 86 years old, the Roman government took him and bound him to a pole, and they piled wood all over at his feet. And this is what they said to him. Polycarp, you will be released if you will recant and deny Jesus as your king and claim Caesar as your Lord and your God. This is Polycarp's response. These 80 and 6 years, he has not failed me. I will not fail him. And they lit the brush. Polycarp was burned at the stake. How can you do that? With the same resilience that John had. He's released me. He's given me everything. He is the king of kings. These guys knew it and they understood it. And so he transfers over to verse 6, and he says this about us. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. And as priest, you and I have the right to enter right into God's presence, to enter into his very throne room. Have you ever thought of yourself as a priest? What's the job of a priest? 
to help those who feel distant from God to know that they can enter his presence. That's the job of a priest. And so you are called priests, your responsibility, and I know you know people who are far from God, is to help them understand. It doesn't matter what you've done. God wants to redeem you, to draw you into his presence. So he calls us a priest. And at this point, John is so overwhelmed with what he's seen, with what has been declared, that he breaks into this big praise. Look with me at the rest of the verse. It says, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The very mention of the name of Jesus causes him to burst out into this, to him be the glory and the power and the dominion and the strength. It's what we call a doxology. It's a doxo. Michael's going to play for you a doxo. I dare say most of you have not heard a powerful doxology in a long time. When I was a kid and I came into church, I used to hear the organist sit there strumming through it. But it was so mundane. It had little meaning. It didn't prepare my heart. But listen to the way a doxology was meant to be played. Listen to it ring the rafters. And you just hear John yelling out, how many would say it's been too long since I've heard that sound? That's the sound that was echoed throughout the churches for years because people got it. They understood. To him be the power and the dominion and the strength. He was so consumed with what he had just seen. And he ends it by saying, amen. But you've got it wrong when you think it was like this. Amen. It was like the guys at the MSU football game yesterday with the last few seconds. I could listen on the radio. I heard it. They all at the very end when the clock ticked down went, yes, yes. That's what they said. I could hear it on the radio. That's what this amen means. Yes, he is the one with dominion and power and strength. To him be the glory and honor forever and ever. And that's a doxology. And recognize what you just heard here is the Trinity him who is and was and is to come, the seven spirits before the throne, and Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the Trinity, the Father, Spirit, and Son. That's where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from. And so John can barely contain himself. And look what happens in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Yes. Earlier this week, a friend took me to see the MSU Spartans play a basketball game. The men against the Grand Valley State team. And at the beginning of the game, I don't think the Spartans knew that what they were doing was playing out a behold. The word behold means this. Pay attention. Get ready. Because the one who's about to take center stage is coming into the room. So at the beginning of the game, we were watching the Spartans, and up on the screen in the, middle, in the middle of the stage on the Tron, they follow the camera, and the camera goes back to the men's locker room, and the guys are getting ready for the game. And there's the camera following the team all the way out to center stage, and the music begins to build in the stadium. So that's what's going on. Pay attention. The big guy's about to come into the room. Behold, he is coming. He's parousia. He's entering. This is the word parousia, a being near, return. This is from the dictionary. Look at this. Pay attention. Specially of Christ, the return of Christ, physical aspects. So what we're talking about here 
is not the rapture of the church. It's the second coming of Jesus. It's not the instant taking away because the second coming is visible to every eye. Every eye will see him, whereas the rapture of the church is instantaneous and the believers are snatched away. But two different events we're talking about here. So this is the second coming, the parousia. How did we see God arrive at Mount Sinai? We just looked at this about a month ago. God came down on a mountain. And how did he come? Fire, yes. Trumpet, yes. Thunder, yes. But a huge cloud enveloped the mountain. Look at this definition from Psalm 143, 104.3. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. Our God's got a cool ride. He rides on clouds. This is a chariot of clouds. We're not talking about a precious moment's angel standing on a little cloud. This is a big cloud. This is God arriving. He comes on the clouds, it says. It's his means of transportation. And every eye will see him. You won't need video. You won't need YouTube. He's there. I don't know how. I won't even speculate on it. I can't begin to imagine. But it says it, so I believe it. Every single eye will see him. His glory will be visible to the entire human race at one moment. This is what Jesus said. Look at the screen with Matthew 24. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. But that's not enough. That's only a partial description. Look at the next verse, Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And we so underestimate the glory of our God. It's just so hard to put it into words. We grasp at it through worship songs, we struggle through words here, finite words. But his majesty, you'll find, as John sees it today, he had to keep using the word like because it just ran out of words. How do you describe something like this? And he says the next part of the verse, even those who pierced him will see him. Well, who are those? Romans and the Jews. Those who had a part in his death are going to see him. So he breaks it into two groups here. Those who pierced him the Gentiles and the Jews who were part of that. And then it says, all the peoples of the earth will mourn. All the tribes. Now, we're not going to mourn. Believers are going to rejoice. We're talking about unbelievers, unrepentant hearts. Those who are so angry because there's a remorse that's just too late. Look with me at the description from Zechariah 12 up on the screen. This is from the Old Testament describing the arrival of Jesus. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. 
so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. In that day, there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem, and Israel's mourning, the Jewish people's mourning, will be very sincere, very genuine. But it says here, the word kapto is used of the Gentiles, and it literally means to cut, like in the pagan rituals, when people who were grieving so deeply slashed themselves. That's a reaction of people who are grieving out of terror because they see the judge is returning, and they understand all the tribes will be judged by this king, and they'll be plunged into mourning. That's what it's speaking of here. And so a big promise like this, a breathtaking promise, has to be backed up by more than just John, doesn't it? John is just a man. He can't just say this on his own. It has to be backed up. And so there's a change in this next verse. It's no longer John speaking. It's God speaking to you. Look what he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And it's as though God picked up an ink pen and signed his name to the book. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the Almighty. And he's signing it. So let's take these three names one at a time. The Alpha and Omega, what does this mean? Alpha, the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega, the last letter in the Greek alphabet. It's like saying, I am A and I am Z. What does that mean in the English language? If you are all the letters in between and everything from beginning to end, you have all knowledge. You are omnipotent. Every letter that can put together the structure of a sentence. That's what that means to say, I am Alpha and Omega. And it also means to say, I am eternity. I have no beginning and no ending. And I am who is and who was and who is to come. God is not confined by space or time. And so the last thing he calls himself is the Almighty. And it affirms his omnipotence. Since he is all-powerful, everything that you just read, everything that was just said is backed up because I'm the Almighty. No one can change my plans. Everything you just read about Alpha and Omega, all the way to the end, the Almighty is going to guarantee this is going to happen. So what you have here is an autographed copy by the author. God's saying, I put my signature on this. This is me endorsing your copy. Believe it. I said it. It's true. Do you see why this is just dripping with emotion? This is John just pouring out his heart of all the things that he's seeing. So what does he say next? Verse 9, I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is John who walked on planet earth with Jesus. Think about this, you guys. He stood on the mountaintop when Jesus was with Moses. He watched Lazarus be resurrected from the grave. This is the John who stood in the boat when it was tossed around in the sea. John saw Jesus say, peace, be still. 
He saw all this. He's lived many years by this point. And this guy says, I'm your brother. Don't think of me as the apostle John, the elevated one, the one who walked with Jesus. I'm your brother. And not only that, I'm your fellow partaker in what? In the tribulation. I'm right there with you. Nero's got his heel right on me. Domitian too. These guys are executing our friends. I'm part of this. The word is hupomone. Look at the definition on the screen. Hupomone, it's very simple. It just means to remain under. It was a word that was used of mules when they loaded them up with all the cargo they could push, possibly put on their back. And when the mules were so fully loaded that their legs began to quiver, they had to hupomone. They had to persevere under the load. And so that's what John is saying. I'm hupomone. I'm persevering under this. I'm working down in the mines. But this God who released me, he gives us the perseverance. So John steps into a whole new description for us in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. doesn't say it was a trumpet, does it? It says it was like the sound of the trumpet. He's in the Spirit, meaning God's Spirit took control of him. Now, there's speculation here from theologians. 50% of the theologians say the Lord's day, that means he was transported forward in time and he saw what's known in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord, meaning the day of judgment. The other 50% of theologians say, no, it's Sunday. It's, the, it's today. It's the Lord's day. I don't care which one you land on. It doesn't really matter. That's what they're saying, but it doesn't really impact this. He's just saying, I was there and I was overtaken by the Spirit and I heard... This loud voice, like a trumpet. He didn't say he was a trumpet. He didn't say Jesus was a trumpet. He's saying it's a loud voice. And so this loud trumpet, it indicates the critical nature and the importance of what's about to be delivered. It always calls our attention. So think back to Mount Sinai again. This is why we went through Exodus. God coming down on the mountain. What did we have? A huge, loud trumpet blast. So much so that everybody in the camp trembled. That's the way Scripture describes it, Exodus 19.16. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, a powerful, clear, penetrating voice. And what did it say? Verse 11, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Write it down on a piece of paper. He didn't have a book like we have. What they had in this period of time was papyrus, a 30-foot roll of paper. You could spread it all the way out, made of papyrus root. Paper was very hard to come by. I don't know if he had to go to the Romans and say, can you get me some paper? I mean, I got some things I got to write down here. Or did he write to the church in Ephesus and say, send me some scrolls? We don't really know how this happened, but he's saying he wrote it down. Verse 12, John turns to see who is talking to him. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, 
I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands, we're told in verse 19 and 20, are what? The church. The church. Us. This is a representation of the church. And we see the number seven again, meaning complete fullness. All of us. All of us are represented by this image. But they're individual churches bearing the truth of God's light. So that's why they're lampstands. We're bearing the truth of God's light to the world. And why are they golden? Gold is the most precious commodity we have on the face of the earth. And what you see in symbolism here is God using man's most precious commodity as a description, as precious as gold. My church, my people are that precious to me. And he sees in the middle of the lampstands something like a son of man. Do you remember the promise that Jesus made to us? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. As a matter of fact, specifically, he says this in Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we see here a beautiful picture of that promise. A beautiful picture of the king protecting and guiding as he's moving among his churches, holding them in his hand, always caring for us, protecting us, caring for, watching over. And so in the middle of verse 13, we begin to get the description of our king. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His very first image of Jesus is of one standing in a robe that's called a judicial robe that goes all the way to feet. Who in a kingdom can wear a judicial robe? The king. Only the king can issue edicts in a kingdom who has the authority and the power. And so the first representation we see here is of the king Jesus in judicial robes, and he's comparing him to what we heard in Daniel when Daniel said, looks like a son of man. And he's in robes of royalty. And to top it off, he's got a golden sash. Now, you've seen pictures probably like I have of Jesus by artists that show him with his big gold belt around his waist. That's not a good interpretation. What this is, is a sash much like you would have seen a king wear. Now, kings like Caesar would have had a purple sash that went across their chest. This is a sash of gold. This means the one who's in total authority. A belt of gold growing across his chest down to his waist. And there's nothing between him and his church. There's no agencies. There's no organizations. It's just the king and his church is represented by the candlesticks. The knowledge that the king moves among us should bring us so much assurance that he's there and he's watching and protecting and caring for us. Verse 14, this is where it gets really so hard to picture. His head and his hair were like, were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. You see how many times the word like occurs just in one sentence? Three times. 
Just trying to grasp words. White like wool. I've seen these old cartoons that you've seen where they show God with this long white beard and white hair down to his shoulders. That's not what it's saying. It's saying it's, it glows. His head is luminous. He's got hair. It says hair. It didn't say he was bald. He said his hair is white like wool. So he's got hair and his eyes were like a flame of fire. I've seen some of these same artists show a picture of Jesus with like a flamethrower going out his eyes. I don't know where they got that from. That's not what it's saying. You could picture like lasers going out his eyes if you want to, but that's not what it's saying either. It's saying it's like a flame of fire. His eyes blazed. What does that mean? Daniel chapter 10 gives us a description of this. I lifted my eyes and looked... And behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was also like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. What this means is an ever-searching gaze Always watching, always penetrating, seeing everything. We have a specific description of this from Hebrews 4.13. It says, Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Verse 15, His feet were like burnished bronze, when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. When I was in college and working my way through flight school, I worked in a foundry. Did the night shift. And in the night shift, we had the responsibility of not only heating up the metal, but pouring the molten metal into the molds. If you've ever worked at two in the morning in one of those black, dingy foundries, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But when that iron comes up out of the kiln, and I mean very, very large buckets of iron, it illuminates everything within the room, and it glows. And this is what it's describing here, is the feet of the king were so brilliant that they glowed and they lit up everything. What is specific about this? In ancient times, this is what kings did. Kings went up on their throne, and their throne was always elevated up above the people. So that when people came in to address issues, they were always looking up at the king. And what they would see were his feet. And his feet were said to carry out the judgment of the kingdom. So we see our king's feet with glowing, powerful, molten metal to move out among his people for judgment. And it says they were made to glow in a furnace with brilliant, brilliant light. And the next thing we see is that description that you and I saw on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, where it says that his voice thundered with the sound of many rushing waters. My wife and I went to Niagara Falls. Some of you probably have done that too. Maybe some of you have been to Victoria Falls, which I understand is even louder than Niagara. But as you get closer to Niagara Falls, you can't even talk to each other. It's lip reading at that point. You begin yelling, what are you saying? Be quiet. You can't read. You, can't, you just can't even pick it up. You see the lips move. It doesn't say that Jesus' voice was rushing waters. It says 
it was like rushing waters. Makes you think of that thunder coming down on Mount Sinai, doesn't it? Thunder. That's the best I can do for you. Sorry. It roars like that. And verse 16, as we wrap this up, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So in his right hand, which is the hand where there's control, it signifies the, the significance of this is that he has control over the things in her right hand and he protects. And what's he protecting? It says the angels. What's that rendered as? The messengers, not just the pastor of the church, the leadership, the elders, those who speak to the people of the church for God. That's what it's saying. I've got you in my right hand. And he deals very harshly as you're going to see in chapter 2, with some of those lights, some of those stars that he holds because he not only protects, he judges. But this very significant word that comes out, it says that out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. I want you to see the definition for this sword. As you see it up on the screen, the word is rumphaya. Say that word with me, rumphaya. Try it again, rumphaya. It's got some power behind it, doesn't it? This isn't a little stabbing knife. This isn't a scalpel that surgeons use. This is a broad axe sword, a big one that they used in Rome when they went to war to whack off the heads of their enemies. And what you see is a description of Jesus with the power to deal with the enemies. Ramphaya, he wields it. He delivers a blow. He deals with those who would stand in opposition to the church. And it's a sharp, two-edged sword. And the last thing we see is that his face was like the sun shining in its strength. I'm not even going to describe that to you. You've all been outside on a sunny day and tried to look at the sun when you shouldn't have. It's just so brilliant. John's just struggling for words. It's, it's like the sun shining in its strength, but yet I can see his eyes. It's so amazing. And he doesn't know what to do with it. And so it culminates in this description before what? Before he faints, he falls right at the feet of what he's seeing. Look at this last verse. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Trembling with fear, just like Joshua, just like Gideon, just like Moses, just like Daniel. You name them all the way through the Bible. Every person who encountered God, boom, like a sack of sand on the ground. And walk up and say, hey, how you doing? How's it going, God? No, collapsed. But what does our God do? John, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. It's me. John got it. He collapsed because he understood this is so overwhelming. And he says something very specific here. He has the keys to death and Hades. Another word for hell. 
Hades in the Old Testament was a picture of where the good departed souls went and where the evil went, two separate chambers, two separate areas. And he says, I have the keys to the gates. The key keeper is what? The one who has authority. He decides who lives and who dies. Jesus is the one who has control over this, and he grants access because of his power and because of his authority. This is so much assurance for us, knowing that Christ has authority over death. Why did John need to know that? His life is being threatened by the Roman authorities. John, don't be afraid. And even more powerful to him is this vision. And it causes him to collapse as a dead man. I don't want to blow by one particular word too quickly as I let you go this morning. I'm going to read to you the last verse, and I'm going to take you back to one word. First of all, it starts out in verse 19 by saying, therefore. Therefore, John, since you've seen all this stuff, since you understand, this is what I want you to do, John. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We're going to get into that next week, but I want to take you back to a word in verse 17, and the word is saw. When John saw Jesus, he fell at his feet as a dead man. You remember the story on Easter morning when Jesus was resurrected and the women that were at the tomb ran back to where the disciples were at and said, you guys aren't going to believe this. He's not there. And so Peter and John had a foot race and John beat Peter to the tomb. And we know that because he said three times, I beat him to the tomb. He got there first. But when they got there, John stopped outside the tomb and Peter ran right in. Peter, it says, saw thereo, the cloth wound up. But that's not the word that's used here in Revelation. The word thereo means he theorized. It's where we get the word theory from. Peter stood there and theorized, trying to come to the conclusion, what is going on here? He saw the face wrapping, and the wrappings around the body just collapsed. And he's theorizing. But the next part of the verse says in chapter 20 that John went inside the tomb. And this is what it says he did. So the other disciple, meaning John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. Et deo. That's the word that's used here in Revelation. He perceived and he understood John, standing at the feet of Jesus, seeing this amazing image of this king of kings, went flat out because, eh, de, oh, I perceive, I get it, I understand. He is King Jesus. That's why he collapsed. He understood. That church, New Hope, is what I want for us, that we would perceive and understand this king of kings. Not just through academia, through the study of what this is saying in the Greek and Hebrew and trying to dissect the definitions, but that we would just collapse out of the wonder and the worship and the majesty 
of our God. Because why? Because it impacts every single thing you do. From the times that you go and serve as a church at the homeless shelters, or work in the food soup lines, or work with sparrows' nests trying to help them rehabilitate a home for a single mom, or you give to the offering boxes to help the church, or you support missions work, if you perceive Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, it totally changes your heart and how you serve. So that you can be like John, who was found in the prison, saying, I'm in the worst place of my life, but praise him from whom all blessings flow. See how it changes your perspective? He got it. That's what I want for this church, that we get it. We serve the king of kings. It's such an amazing thing. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we leave this room, if we remember nothing else, we remember John's collapse at your feet. We can forget all the fancy definitions and trying to understand the descriptions. But to grasp that, Father, to recognize who this King of Kings is, is something we would count ourselves privileged to be able to understand. So, Father, I ask that for the men and women, the students, the children in this room, for this entire church, that we would go forward in an understanding heart. Because, Father, we want to know you better. We really do. So, Father, as we work through this series over the next weeks and months ahead of us, we ask that you would continue to make this truth known to us because you're the truth giver. And so we look to you for this. Father, that's what I ask for for this church. In Jesus' mighty risen name, amen. Have a great week.